What's going on, guys? Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Another great show where we welcome Dr. Leah Lees, and she is also known as the Shameless Psychiatrist, and she's on a mission to help children and parents live without shame about their sexuality. She's a double board certified adult and child psychiatrist who has worked with non-traditional family arrangements throughout her career. And that's what we dive into is we talk about co-parenting mostly, what that looks like, and then also shame around sexuality and how to teach our kids not to have shame around sexuality, which we really enjoyed. Yeah. And if you're listening and you don't have kids, still tune in because she talks a lot about the importance of getting in touch with your own sexuality and how that could help you if you do plan to have kids or just in general to have a healthy look on, outlook on sexuality. Yeah, your own sexual story, she calls it. And uh, yeah, we really enjoyed today's show. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, for subscribing to the podcast. It's almost time for our summer uh, tell a friend and family podcast drive. Summer? We're in the middle of winter right now. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're we're confused in, because we're in Costa, we're in Costa Rica. Rica. Summer will be here before you know it. That's true. And flies by. You could be listening to this whenever, you know, if it comes out and it's cold. So it's our winter, it's our summer, our spring and our fall marathons. Whenever you're listening to it. Whenever you're listening to it. (laughs) We're doing, my point was, (laughs) is we're doing our summer subscribe to I Do Podcast Drive, which is a new thing I just made up where (laughs) we've talked about it in the past, but we really appreciate you guys telling your friends and family about the show. Obviously, if you like it and you find it valuable, tell someone. I think that's the best way that we can continue to grow and give you great content and continue to be able to bring shows like this to you guys. And, And we love doing it because we're getting great advice right alongside you. Right. And the more, if you guys aren't familiar with how it works in iTunes, the more you guys listen the, and the more you share it, the more we're visible, which is good for our numbers, good for our sponsors and good for us because we're really providing this content for free. And so it really, really helps us out when you guys share with your friends and family. Otherwise, <laughs> Sarah and I are going to come to your door and just ask, ask for a donation. For a donation. <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, we appreciate you guys and, and we love to be able to bring you uh, this stuff and hope you're having a great day and enjoy today's show. We also wanted to take this time to tell you guys about our podcast series, Love Under Quarantine. And if you're like Sarah and I, you've been experiencing quite a bit of stress and uncertainty around this whole COVID-19 epidemic, and we're right there with you getting through it. So we decided to put together this course with 16 therapists who are working with clients who are dealing with all of the uncertainty and stress of these times and specifically tools and tactics that are very actionable to help improve, repair, maintain your relationship. Just survive. (laughs) Survive while we deal with this. So we put it together. It's $20. You go to the link in the show notes and you can just buy it right there and 10% of the proceeds go to the Nosara Food Bank to feed local families here in Nosara, Costa Rica. So you're doing some good there and you're going to be helping 
your relationship in these tough times. It's super easy to sign up. If you have Apple Pay or Google Pay set up on your phone, it takes literally a minute. It's super fast. And if you don't, you can pay via your credit card. You get an email within a minute and the podcast series goes directly into wherever you're listening to your podcast right now. So it's super easy. It takes less than a minute and we hope you guys check it out. Hi, Dr. Lees. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. We're excited to have you. And and today we want to dive into something we haven't really covered on the show, and that is different types of family dynamics that people might not be familiar with as alternatives to the traditional nuclear family, husband, wife, kids, picket fence, house, and, yeah. and we're doing things differently these days. And, and you have a lot of experience and work with people approaching relationships differently. So can you maybe tell us what are some of the more common family dynamics you're seeing? And then we can dive in and talk about what's going on and, and how our listeners can apply this to their lives. Great. Thank you, Chase. I think that um, the traditional family arrangement is now is now um, less of uh, less of common than than the non traditional and the non traditional the new normals. I think you know with the divorce rate being you know fifty five percent, we are now seeing tons of different co parenting arrangements, and um, there is no like nuclear family like we used to think of in the normal Norman Rockwell paintings. Um, and I think that there has been so many ways that I've seen um, new parenting arrangements. I think um, uh, obviously there's the divorced parents and then remarriage. And then now you have, you know, two sets of parents on both sides um, because they often get remarried. Um, I see a lot of, um, uh, people having babies that aren't necessarily in a romantic relationship with their with the father or the, of the baby. So, for example, I've seen a lot of two male uh, single sex homosexual couples finding a female in you know their late thirties and deciding the three of them want to have a baby together and create co parenting arrangements around that. And I've seen that work really well. Um, and I have worked with some polyamorous families who have all kinds of interesting triads and um, different parenting arrangements, raising their children really beautifully, as well as a lot of single sex families. Um, and I've seen two single sex female couples finding a, a male as well who wants to be involved, who you know, it can serve as like an uncle role. Um, so I've seen a lot of different things and I'm really happy to talk about um, what kind of works for these families and and the paradigms that I've seen being used in, in, in the family arrangements. I don't know if you want to dive into one particular type first. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I'm just curious for the more of traditional couples that you're working with, I guess more of a male-female dynamic and they're going through a divorce or a separation, are most of them aware of other alternatives for their family dynamics or is it kind of a new thing when they come to see you and learning about these dynamics is more of a new thing? What what are you experiencing? Um, I am definitely experiencing that. Um, Most of the parents who are getting divorced and come to me 
commit a lot of grave sins and they seem to be the same sins over and over and over. And I think they're really some simple rules that I really get them to think through before they break up um, or before they tell the children that are incredibly helpful that I'm, I will share with you. Um, and they, they seem obvious, but for some reason they're very elusive to people. Um, so, so um, I'll give you some examples. Um, the first is that um, when you break up and you move to different homes that the child should have say over how the space is designed in their new home. Um, so they really feel comfortable in their, both of their new homes, like they're both of their rooms, they should be in charge of the paint color and the furniture and the, um, you know, what kind of things they want to put in their room to make the room feel like home, no matter where they are. Cause then what happens, I see a lot of times is the child will prefer their original home over the new home. And then they will prefer to be with the parent that's living in the original home over the new parent. And it has less to do with the fact that they don't love the new parent as much. I mean, the other parent as much, but they're just not as comfortable there. You know, they're used to their neighborhood and they're used to their certain friends that live around the block. And so then it can feel a little like parental alienation, like, you know, to the father or the mother who has moved away. Um, so I really encourage like a lot of efforts we put into making that home feel really great for, for the kid. Um, and sometimes it's like overlooked is um, that you can't use your child as a spy, which is like such a mistake that parents make even very harmlessly. They'll be like, Oh, what did you do over your dad's this weekend? Oh, who, who did you go and hang out with? And that, that kind of questioning is it creates a lot of stress for their for the child because they feel like oh well dad is going to get in trouble if I tell mom that I went to McDonald's so you know because dad you know it can be very innocent but it can really cause huge problems for the kid and stress for the kid so I always advise like divorced parents don't ask if they want to tell you great but don't ask um, because that time with the other parent is special and should be left you know private. Because then they might feel like they have to be used as a spy and it can get out of control where they're oh, is, is, is daddy dating or is mommy dating and who and who are they seeing? You know, it can get really ugly um, or it can be really innocent. But either way, it, it does cause kids a lot of stress because they feel like they have to pick sides. Um, so that's something that I, I really advise never, never to do. And if there's any like major changes in your life as a divorced parent, like you got a new job or you are dating someone new, you have to tell the other partner yourself. Like don't, don't let the, the child be the deliverer of that news um, because it is a really unfair position to put, put your child in. So that's kind of some thoughts. And then um, I can give specific tips about dating too, if you're interested, like how to introduce new partners. Let's get into that in a second, but I want to kind of clarify for myself, what exactly co-parenting looks like in, in the different options there and how that's different from just being divorced, suddenly co-parenting is in the lexicon. And I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> what it, I've obviously like, literally, I understand it, but like, what does it look like in practice from just like, my parents were divorced and I guess they co-parented, but um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, there's obviously the custody arrangement. So, you know, where the child's going to physically be. And then there is all of the financial things that need to be ironed out. Um, 
And the most common arrangement I see is that the, the child lives in one, one home, usually the mom's during the week. And, you know, the father gets, you know, three weekends a month and then, you know, alternate vacations. But I've certainly seen the 50-50 split as well. If, if the kid lives very, if the both parents live very, very close to the school, um, and that's becoming way more common now, um, actually, because the courts are really pushing that. They're really wanting the father to have 50-50, and they're very pro-fathers now. So I see a lot more of the 50-50 split than I've ever seen. Um, and the, co- the the courts are very pro-father now, pro-fathers now. Like, um, fathers get a lot more rights. Um, and in financially, too, like the fathers, um, when, you have the, when you have the joint custody 50-50, the the responsibility for financials is also split 50-50. They don't really favor either parent anymore like they used to, except for if one parent is, you know, well over moneyed, you know, has a lot more money than the other one, then there might be some adjustments. Um, so the co-parenting arrangements, you know, when they go smoothly, they're amazing. Cause this is how I see it. Like you're divorced and you're now like out there wanting to date again. And you have like a, a babysitter, like, and that's the other parent 50% of the time. Right. So, you know, you want to go on a date, like you just wait for when it's the father's term and you can go out and you have to pay for it. So in that way, it's like kind of great, you know, and you trust that person. And so, um, I do a lot of work with families that come to my office around, like, let's try to settle this here because the courts never do a very good job and they really don't want to be involved anyway. And, you know, let's try to come up with a reasonable co-parenting arrangement. And so you guys don't have to go through the court system, which is not going to always be on your side and never, and a lot of times really backfires. So that's, that's what we do a lot here. So we talked a little bit about introducing the kids to new partners and dating if you're divorced or separated and and you're co-parenting, that can obviously be a minefield. How are individuals navigating that? What's the best way to do that with your kids? Okay. Uh, The first thing I'm going to say is, you know, no matter how angry you are with the person who you divorce, you know, you pick them for a reason and you had a child with them for a reason. And chances are they're a pretty decent human being. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to that rule. And you have got to trust that that person loves your child as well and wouldn't put your child at harm. And I'm saying this because a lot of parents get into this thing. Well, you know, I don't know if I can trust whoever my, the father or mother of my child is who they're dating. Like, I don't know that person. What if they're a child molester? What if they're going to hurt my child? And I always say like, why would they pick someone like that? Like you have to have faith. If you go into it paranoid already about this person, you don't even know you've never met and you already bring into it all this baggage and all these distortions of thought, negative thoughts, you're going to transmit all that fear to your child. And that's not fair because that person deserves you know, your, you deserves, um, you know, to go to, to have a relationship with your child too. So it's like, so I would say, don't automatically assume the worst. It's all going to be okay. And the second thing I always say is like that person, whoever it is, the new girlfriend or boyfriend is probably going to turn out to be a very decent parent. Like they're, you know, raised well, you got to trust that that person is also going to look after the welfare of your child in most instances. So you don't really need to get too involved. Like, you know, if that person wants to take your child to ice cream or to the playground or, you know, to do like the things that 
parents like to do, like you should be happy. It's another parent in that child's life, another person to help with the homework, another person to, you know, be there for the kid, or maybe they could be more objective and give different and good advice to your child. So go into it with a scent of optimism. It will definitely help the process. The second thing I say is like, when you think about introducing a new partner into a child's life, um, you, you know, a couple of thoughts I have on that. The first is make a child feel a little bit a part of it um, in the sense of like meet in a neutral place, like a park or a playground or a museum. And so that way the child doesn't feel like this person has already have this like um, entrenched intimate relationship with their mother or father that they know nothing about. They can really feel like, oh, we're all like learning about each other at the same time. So it doesn't feel as threatening. Um, sometimes the parents make the mistake of having the, the person, the romantic partner come over to the house when that romantic partner has been there a thousand times. And then like all of a sudden goes in the cabinet, pulls out the milk, the ice cream, whatever, knows where everything is. And the kid's like, wait a second. I didn't know this person's been over and been in my room and touched my stuff. Like I had no idea. Like, and they feel like betrayed. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I said, like, do it on a neutral rate and then have the new partner be brought into the home as if they were a guest in the home, even if they've been there before. And, you know, ask the child, like, oh, show them your room, like, show them your toys, like, like, what, you know, and have the person ask the new romantic partner ask questions like, oh, why do you like that poster? Or, you know, what food do you like? And so it really feels like the child's like being brought in in the beginning. And there's not like this scheming going on and they don't feel upset and they can really feel ownership over it. Like, wow, this person's really cool. Like I like having them here. This has been great. And then don't rush like having that person sleep over right away. Like let the, let the, the new child get used to the person like in small, you know, sound bites. And then you can let, you know, obviously the relationship progress and, you know, they can becoming more of a co-parenting situation also because as a divorced parent or a separated parent, you don't know that person very well either. So you may not want to jump in too deep, you know, with having that person get very bonded to your kid and then you break up, which is very upsetting. So it's great to do like the bites and getting to know each other, you know, and you can all, you can do that as a process. Like you as a per, you don't have to, you as a dating person can have this new relationship come in new and you can all explore together whether this is a great fit for your family. I'm not saying the kid gets to decide, but I'm saying you can you can go about the process of dating in in in, in a way that everybody gets kind of involved and we all you know we all that you and your child learn about this person together. And then if it doesn't work out, you can just simply explain like I really like that person, a great person. I hope we can be friends, but it's just not going to work out. And you know the child's not it's not going to devastate the child if there has been measures put in place or boundaries put in place with the amount of time the child gets to spend with whoever that person is. Is that making sense? Yes. Yeah. And as a child of divorced parents that both remarried and, and dated, I have a lot of, a lot of questions. I, I'm wondering what are the ways to, limit the amount of, I don't know, like possessiveness. I found that I was really annoyed with the women that my dad dated. They, they could be anyone. And and then my sister was really annoyed with the men that my mom dated. And I feel like that's probably pretty common. And are there any ways that 
the parents can facilitate a, an easier relationship between the kid and a new partner with their parent. Yes. I think, you know, if you follow some of the steps that I told you and make the child feel a little more part of it, it will definitely help. Um, you know, I was just watching that TV show, Sex Education. And, you know, of course, the teenage boy's always running into his mother having sex with someone, you know, and that is just not the right way to introduce a relationship. So I think, um, um, you know, do, following the steps that I outlined above, but also another thing is like uh, that a huge mistake that parents make is they parentify their child and they ask their child like, Oh, how do I look in this outfit? I'm going on a date. Sounds great. But you know, that's not, that's not appropriate. You know, like, it's almost putting the child in the role of a friend. And I always think that's a mistake. Um, Things like, you know, asking the kid advice about, you know, uh, what, what are the, you know, what restaurants are good or what they should be doing with this new person or um, it it always backfires. And I find that a lot of your your parents might've done this, your parents might not have. There was also a lot of um, shame around, um, uh, for the child, a lot of shame around, you know, what if my father finds out, like in the case of your, um, of your, um, I guess it was your sister not wanting to, um, know the male partners that your mother was dating. Is that correct? Yeah. Or just having an adversarial relationship. So like there's a lot of, or the other way around, there's a lot of shame over like, well, what if my, my birth father, my real father finds out, you know, and, you know, will he be angry? Will he be upset? Will he be asking me questions? Will I have to report? And it, it, it maybe vice versa for your mom, like, oh, you know, you know, what is my mom going to think of these new people? And if I form a relationship with that new woman, will my mom get jealous or upset? And it's just too much, you know, drama for me because she'll feel replaced. So um, I think it also would be very good for the parent, the, uh, you know, the divorced parent to say to their child, like, I'm going to really like whoever your father is too. Like, you know, whoever your father pick, I'm going to like too, because your father's got great taste. He picked me, you know? And so I will never feel like I'm being replaced or I will, you know, if you spend time with your dad's new girlfriend, I will be very happy for you to spend that time with them and develop a relationship because, you know, it's more, it's, it's more wonderful people to care about you. It's just like giving them permission to form a bond it could also be really, really useful. Those are great points. That really mm-hmm. resonates. And not that that went on personally in my life, but I could just see how my, if my dad had just come out and said those things, it would just, mm-hmm. it would just, everything's more out in the open, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like those conversations were never had. And, and so that, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned the show, the, the boy walking in on his mom. I, I heard, I've heard about that show, Sex Education, but you touched Hilarious, on Hilarious, by the yeah. way. It's so funny. You gotta watch it. it. Sounds good. Well, <laughs> you know, it, one of the other things you do work with is, is the shame around sexuality. And I think whether our listeners are divorced parents or, or not, it's valuable to teach our kids to not have that. I know I wish I had a better perspective on sexuality growing up. It wasn't really even talked about. So how can parents do that? We have a four-year-old daughter and we want to know. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm going to say that sex, there should never be the sex talk, right? It, it, you know, it, it's funny when I watch, you know, videos of parents trying to give the, the sex talk. Um, because if you think you're going to have the sex talk, you've already lost, you've already lost. So uh, <laughs> sex talks need to be ongoing and they start as soon as the kid is born, believe it or not, in the, se- in the sense of, you know, what's the first thing you do with your baby? You teach them how to talk, right? So the how it begins is like you really teach your child the correct just uh, names for their anatomy. So, you know, vulva, labia, clitoris, scrotum, penis, rectum. I mean, they don't see the rectum, but anus. And um, you just say, oh, you know, it's time to clean your anus. It's time, you know, you need to wipe your labia from front to back. And like, you know, you're labeling the parts. So you're pointing to them and you're saying, oh, that's your labia. You know, that's your anus. You know, that's your buttocks that's your belly button. Those are your nipples. And just like they're learning their nose, their eyes, and their ears, they're learning the correct name for body parts. And that's the first part of sexual education. And why is that important? Because studies show that children who can correctly name their anatomical parts are less likely to get sexually assaulted and more likely to be believed when they are. Because those are usually the same parents who are talking about touching, right? And who's allowed to touch those parts. And so, um, and also they've done studies on perps of sexual assault and they will stay away from those kids because they know those kids will come right up to their parents and be like, he touched my labia. That's not okay. You know, because, you know, that's what you start to do. And um, then you really go, you can go into boundaries. Who's allowed to touch you? Who's not allowed to touch you? Where are they allowed to touch you? Where are they not allowed to touch you? And that's like two, three, and four, you know? And, um, and also around masturbation. So like from zero to two, like, I mean, all, most children masturbate. I'm not saying all children, but certainly I've seen it a lot. Um, my children did and, um, you know, little boys do all the time and even get like little erections and it's totally normal. And from zero to two, my best advice is just to ignore it. Like you don't need to say anything. You don't have to push their hands away. You don't have to say, don't do that in front of people. Just say nothing because their language skills aren't really developed enough to get it why you're saying that. But um, from from two onward, I, I do recommend just saying like, yes, it feels good to touch yourself you know, and it's called masturbation and, you know, please explore your body, but just do it when you're alone. And that's all you need to say. And, you know, because they might do it when watching TV or inappropriately. Um, so I really say, just, just, just tell them that. Um, and then, you know, I can go up through the age ranges, but every age range is layering in, like you're layering in sexual education every time, like you're getting more, you're bringing in new things that already have so much foundation. And then with every age, you're layering in a new thing, everything from, you know, how to clean yourself, how to protect yourself against infection, pinworms. And then you're going into like, you know, up in the age range to like sperm and egg. That's like five, six, seven. There's great books on that. Like, how do you, how are babies made? basic biology, something every kid should know about before they become a teenager. Because by that point, you really want to get into intimacy, love, relationships, STDs. You know, you don't want to be explaining like the sperm and the egg, like that should have already been done. And, you know, 
Um, and then, you know, you can layer in all those really nuanced things that are so very important and they're not covering their ears going, mom, dad, no, I already learned this in health class. Like, oh, I don't want to talk about this with you because they're used to it. They know you're going to talk about it and they're not, they're not feeling shamed about it. And you're feeling so much more comfortable because you've been talking about it all along and it doesn't feel weird. So that's, 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 that's my advice for sexual education of a child. It's like ongoing and um, obviously be there for questions, but don't wait for the questions. You know, you gotta, you gotta be poking and prodding and asking what they know and, and, and dispelling misinformation. Like, how do you think babies were made? You know, they might have a total, like they might think, I mean, some babies think it comes, some children be like, oh, it comes out of your butthole. And I'm like, mm. you know, you don't want them to go into school saying that. Peer, this is like kid, they called him period boy, poor kid on Instagram, got like maliciously bullied because he said that girls wouldn't need tampons if they learned to control their bladders. I mean, just, you know, you don't want, you don't want that to be your kid, right? Before we continue on, we want to tell you about today's sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Objective Wellness. Staying healthy and strong is more important than ever. And for me, it's all about understanding what you put in and on your body and staying active in the ocean, getting plenty of vitamin D that's easy down here in Costa Rica. And to help us stay resilient and well, we started taking supplements from Objective Wellness. Objective Wellness offers targeted solutions for you to stay healthy and strong. So they focus on specific ways to help you sleep better, improve your immune system, have more energy, and even less wrinkles. And when I heard that, it immediately grabbed my attention. And what else drew me to their products is that Objective Wellness understands that there's no one-size-fits-all solution and that wellness looks different for everyone. Even between Chase and I, wellness looks different. So when I told him that he can eat some chocolate and sleep better, he was sold. <laughs> that sounds a little too good to be true. And their fast asleep saffron sleep chocolates are a real thing. And <laughs> yes, <it> has, they are. <laughs> has a calming GABA that relaxes your mind to lull you to sleep while the saffron keeps you sound asleep all night. And I love these things. And there's no water required. Delicious chocolate mints simply melt away so you're not waking for a bathroom break in the middle of the night. Yes, that is a major win. We don't have to get up in the middle of the night. And all their ingredients are backed by science. And behind each ingredient, there is a scientific study with endless hours of research. So objective wellness helps us feel our best and we want them to help you too. Go to objectivewellness.com and use the promo code I do to get 20% off your first order. And if you're not completely satisfied, you can get a full refund. That is their objective promise. Again, visit objectivewellness.com and use the promo code I do for 20% off. Today's episode is also brought to you by our online course, Spark My Relationship. Do you guys want to create more passion, improve your communication, and build a stronger, more intimate connection with your partner in less than 90 days? Yes. Sign yes. me up. <laughs> then you guys need to check out our online course, Spark My Relationship. It is an online course, like I mentioned, that we created with over 15 therapists and psychologists to bring you guys the strategies marriage therapists teach their clients. 
we talk about it on the show, relationships take work. Sometimes they function pretty easily and you coast along, but we've found the reality is, is you have to do work sometimes and to make them better, to change them so that they're more satisfying for both partners. And you've made it here. You've made it to listening to our show. So you guys probably already know that a little bit. But what you might not know are the specific tools and exercises that you need to create those lasting and positive improvements in your relationship. And like Chase said, change does not happen on its own. It takes hard work. And that's why we created the course. Spark One Relationship is designed to infuse your life and relationship with fresh passion, skills, and wisdom. And it's a self-paced journey that's perfect for turning up the heat, having some fun together, and revolutionizing your intimacy and communication. And just some tools and strategies that the course includes is to how to eliminate unhelpful old habits, develop mindful awareness to help improve your stress management, learn healthy and successful communication tools, create a deeper and more intimate bond, and strengthen your couple microculture, which you will find out what that is. Uh, in the future together. So for our listeners only, we're offering a special of $100 off the course. Visit sparkmyrelationship.com slash unlock to unlock your discount. And there is a 30-day money-back guarantee. So there really is no reason to not give it a try. So go to sparkmyrelationship.com slash unlock for $100 off. I really want Stella, to me, maybe a measure of success is is her comfort in talking to us about it. You know, obviously every kid is different in their personality, but I know it was like, it was never talked about growing no, up with, no. and I think Sarah as well, like at all. And I think just that fact makes it like a taboo thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and then of course, culture also like suppresses that. And, you know, I'm, 34 this year and it still has it impacted me, you know, that I have this negative, not, it's not super, maybe negative is not the word, but just, I can't freely talk about sexuality like that much. Not that it needs to be like banter, like when you're out to dinner with friends, but it's like this area of life as a human that is as natural as breathing and eating. And yet, it feels forbidden, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, Chase, you've internalized a lot of that shame. And that comes from not just the fact your parents didn't say anything, but all the subliminal messages they gave you. You know, the look of fear in their eyes when you like when any TV show came up, which had something sexual and, you know, it, it, it's, it's so much internalized shame that we have around our beautiful, wondrous bodies. And it is having sex, reproducing, falling in love, you know, are some of the most important things we'll ever do. And certainly will you want your daughter, your beautiful daughter to have those things. And, you know, all parents really do on a fundamental level. So, you know, that's why I wrote the book called Shameless because, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of and, and, and our bodies and our, you know, ability to have sex and experience pleasure are, it's beautiful and it should be embraced by parents. For our listeners who have children and, and maybe they've been living more on the shame side with sexuality with their 
relationship and their children, what would be the first place for them to start to kind of open that dialogue and get the shame uh, associated with sexuality out of the relationship and out of parenting? Yeah. I mean, simple things like going into the mirror and saying like labia, like scrotum, anus. Some people are so uncomfortable like saying pee pee, you know, wee wee and your hoo ho and your jewel. And it's like, you know, you got to learn how to say it yourself. You know, might might feel like a curse word at first, but it's not, you know? And, um, and another thing is to use resources. Like, um, it's not the stork is a great like early development developmental book. And then for teenagers, um, sex is a funny word by Corey Silverberg. These are like great resources. Like if you don't know how to say it, then, you know, the, you can read it to your kid or read it with your kid, ask them if they have questions. It's a great like tool. And then another advice I always give parents is like, use like media as a jumping off point. So like you can look through their Instagram accounts if they have them. You can ask like, what do you think about what she's wearing? Do you think that's appropriate? Is that not appropriate? Or if a show comes on TV and people are kissing, you can ask like very open-ended questions. Like, what do you, what do you think is the right age to start kissing if they're like nine or 10? You know, just sort of get a read of like where their head is at. And then you can like talk about it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about them per se, but um, you know, and you can use it as a tool to say, oh, well, you know, you know, maybe 13, 14, 15 or 16, 17, you know, whatever it is your values are. But I think it's really great to use media as a, um, as a jumping off point. And the third thing I want to, third point I want to make is something called owning your own sexual story. And I feel like for parents, this is critical. Um, you have to be comfortable with your own sexual life before you can impart wisdom to your child. So it's like, what is it about? What did you learn from your parents? What did they tell you? How, you know, what were your early sexual experiences like? Um, I know how did you learn to become a good partner or be in a relationship? And what are the like values and pearls and wisdom of all that you can pass down? So it's a great like thought process to think through and owning your sexual story will help you pass down intergenerational wisdom instead of just imparting your own trauma. How can we certainly understand our own sexual story just going back through the past, but how can we make it a better story? Like what I said, like having carried this shame, again, it's nothing debilitating, but I wish it it wasn't that way for for myself. How can I work towards reversing that or or having less shame around sexuality? Um it's 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 a tool I use in my book called cognitive reframing and it's a it's a cognitive behavioral therapy technique where you take your past experiences and there'll, there'll be a model of this in my book but you take your past experiences and you sift through it and you try to figure out what are the pearls or the values that that you want to impart to your child. Like, for example, if you were ever sexually assaulted, you, I don't think you would want to tell your child that you're going to scare them. Right. But you might want to say like what, you know, I had some hard times growing up and what I learned from it is that, you know, when I go out and, you know, with my friends, like, and I might be drinking or I might be at a party, like I've always learned to stay with my friends and never leave, leave my friends behind because, you know, that way I can always stay safe and make sure I have a ride home. And so, so that would be the sort of value or wisdom or the pearl I would extract from that bad experience to pass down to my child. Um, you know, this whole idea of saying something like, oh, men can't be trusted. Like, 
that's not a great like pearl. Like if you feel that, that's because you've been really traumatized by your sexual history and you do not want to impart that kind of thing down. And it's easy for you to spot where those things are. Like if, you know, these negative thought patterns and it's, and it's also, you can reframe it and say, what's the positive spin on it? Like, you know, what is the values? What are the good things about what happened in my life? And let's pass down those. And for the really bad things, what did I learn? Like, what are the, what, what did I learn from it that I would rather my kids know? You know, what, what would I do differently next time? I'm just going to talk about that, you know? So, you know, this whole idea of like, all we do is fear monger kids around sexuality. Like, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to get an STD. You're, you know, and it's kind of like, well, no, actually, sex is wonderful. And you're going to have so much pleasure and you're going to love it. Let's impart down that. And then at the same time, you can say, okay, these are things you have to be careful about. I'm curious because it seems like sexuality is is starting younger and younger with kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Like, how does that play out in terms of maturity level equivalent to sexuality? Like, what are your recommendations on like, I guess, ages for certain sexual experiences and like what's appropriate? Okay. So... Children are getting their menstrual periods. Girls are getting their menstrual because of nutrition and hormones and the food and all that. And uh, menarche, age of first menstrual period, is correlated with earlier sexual um, experiences. Um, so that might be some of you know what's going on. But it, it's actually not true that children are delving into sex earlier. The sex, age of sexual latency has gone up, like the first sexual initiation from 16 to 17 for both boys and girls, including oral sex. So kids are actually having sex later and the teenage pregnancy rate has dramatically dropped uh, by one third. So I definitely think that that's not exactly true. The teenagers that I see anyway are waiting and they are, um, they are um, okay with waiting. I think some of that is good and some of it is bad because why I say bad is because Part of the reason why they're waiting, a lot of them, is they're just overstressed and they are incredibly overcommitted, and they don't have time to like hang out like we used to. Um, they don't; they have very limited free time. So part of it is that they don't really have enough time to really connect and form these intimate bonds, and then that progressed to sex. So you know, part of it is good, part of it is not good. Um, I think that what you're reacting to is not fact about you know, children are having sex earlier. What you're reacting to is the media is much more sexualized now than it ever was. And so kids are seeing a lot of very easy access pornography from a very early age. Um, Usually like age 12, they start seeing pornography. Um, And it's very violent and degrading to women. 75% of free pornography is violent and degradating to women. So they're seeing violent and degradating pornography at a very early age, which is extremely disturbing. And um, also the media, like all the social media and um, even regular TV now is a lot more sexualized. People are dressing much sexier. There's a lot more talk about it. And um, don't confuse that with kids actually doing it, but it does cause a lot of, you know, kids to um, become obsessed with what they look like or putting on a certain image. And um, that definitely has been affecting their self-esteem. But how do you find that balance of when you say like women dressing sexually, if that's 
over-sexualization or that's just women expressing their wanting to feel and look sexy? Like, how do you explain that to a kid? Well, I mean, I, I think women should dress sexy if they want to. And I think that's, that's awesome. You know, I always say it's a time and a place. And that's what I always tell kids that I work with. Like, you know, you're going to the prom and you want to wear a low cut dress, have at it, you know, but you're not going to go to school, you know, with your boobs hanging out because that's, you're supposed to be learning there. Just like, I wouldn't go to my job like that. And I'll definitely go to a party like that. And it's like, it's about explaining like time and a place, like, you know, and, you know, as you, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, obviously kids are going to become dressed more sexual. They're going to want to be more provocative. And that's, that's okay. You even embrace that as a parent, but like, do you want your, you know, 13 year old girl going to school with their, with her breasts hanging out? No, absolutely not. Because it's not, this is a place of learning. Right. And so I think there is that discussion needs to happen about, you know, what's appropriate to wear and what circumstances and also what ages, like, you know, as they get older, they can dress, you know, more independently and really think through what they want to wear. Um, but, you know, school should not be a fashion show. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's a wrong emphasis. I remember that was always a struggle growing up. I remember at some point, like hiding clothes from my mom because, you know, I wanted to wear something a little bit more racy and it was not appropriate, but still like fighting that control. Yeah. And I think there is that push pull between when you think they're ready to handle, because obviously what parents are concerned of is Sarah's like, you know, if a 13 year old girl is wearing like a you know, shortcut blouse, they're going to be leered at by very older men. Mm-hmm. And that is really concerning and upsetting. And how are they going to manage? How's that 13 year old girl going to manage that, you know, when they're getting hollered at on the bus and you're trying to protect them from that as you should, because you're their parent, but a 16, 17 year old can handle that. They'll, you know, they'll learn to be like, Oh, you know, get a life, you know, right. <laughs> they have the ability to understand and have the maturity to be able to handle the ramifications of that kind of thing. So you're really thinking through their, their, their mental functioning, their responsibility and trying to give them what they can handle. Right. And I mean, my hope with Stella, our daughter is that she feels comfortable talking to us and asking whether or not something is appropriate. And I think that goes back to what you're saying from the very early age of just starting that dialogue and that conversation so that there is that always that level of comfort. Yes, absolutely. And, and my hope is that she has the confidence to tell a guy, get a life. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when they're wearing that low cup blouse and they're 16 or 17 and, you know, they can just turn around and be like, don't touch me, get a life. Like they'll have the confidence to do that. They won't have the confidence to do that when they're 13. They'll be like shocked and horrified mm-hmm. because they don't even know what that is yet. So, you know, it, it, it's again, layering in that maturity and making sure they're ready to handle what's coming. Well, Dr. Lise, thank you so much for all this great information. We have some homework to do with our with our yeah. daughter. I love it. It's important to me having grown up without that freedom to talk about sexuality. This isn't a knock on my parents. So great parents. But I think yeah. it's probably really common. And then all the great information about co-parenting. Before we wrap up, are there any things you want to leave our listeners with, whether it's about shame and sexuality or co-parenting? Uh, please do and let us know about your book and any other information and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, 
I, I would like to wrap up and say that, you know, there's no need to feel shame about your sexuality. It's the most natural, beautiful thing in the world. Embrace it, embrace it in your children. And when they become teenagers and they start to become sexual beings, um, allow them to test those boundaries in a slow and mitigated way with your support so much better that they learn to become a sexual human being when they're under your roof rather than when they have to go out and uh, do it in the, in the quote real world where they can get really hurt without your help. So, you know, you have them through those formative years, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, those are the years where they become sexual beings. So be there for them and embrace it and um, allow that discussion to be open. So that's a great piece of advice I can give you. Wonderful. Well, we'll have the links to all the books you recommended as well as your book and the link to your website on the show notes page. Yeah. Shameless Psychiatrist, you know, Shameless Psychiatrist is my website and sign up for my newsletter. Wonderful. Yes. We'll have all those links and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. As always, all the links are in the podcast description and on our website. So if you are dying to check out our new podcast series, Love Under Quarantine, you can click those links in the episode description and get access immediately. The podcast series is now available and we hope you guys check it out. And as well, there are always free resources on our website at idpodcast.com, freebies, all different types of topics. So check out our website and we hope you guys enjoyed the show. <laughs>